You are listening to the Godarchy Podcast, where we shove a crowbar between state and church. This is the spot where Christian faith intersects with libertarian anarchism and voluntarism. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, we're going to talk about the laws of war. Greetings to everybody. As always, thank you for tuning in to the Godarchy Podcast. I do appreciate you taking a little bit of time out of your day to listen to the show. When we got finished with the interview for this episode, I told my guest that this may well be the most thought-provoking and deepest interview I've done for this show. Um, there will be numerous times when you're going to be listening to this, you're going to go, hmm. And you'll actually hear me pause and you'll probably be able to hear the hmm in my mind. There is a lot to chew on in this episode. We're going to be talking about the laws of war from a biblical perspective. My guest is Adam Terrell. Adam is the host of the Theocracy podcast. And Adam has a really interesting perspective And I'm just going to read a little piece out of his uh, about section from his podcast. Uh, He says his show is about how to apply the Mosaic law to all of life. And he says the entire Mosaic law is obligatory to everyone. Now, as Christians, we're going to, I guarantee you, you hear that and you're going, whoa, 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 Uh, because that was exactly my reaction. But I think you'll find... uh, If you really understand where he's coming from, uh, yes, Mosaic law is obligatory and it does apply, but with the advent of the new covenant, with the coming of Jesus, uh, how that law applies and looks uh, is different than what we might see on the surface in the Old Testament. So, that's where Adam's coming from. Uh, Again, it's a very thought-provoking perspective. And uh, agree or disagree, I think this discussion is very pertinent and uh, very interesting. We're talking again about the laws of war. Um, and indeed, if you read various verses in the Old Testament, you will find that God laid down laws for the Israelites in particular on how they were to wage war. And so we're going to talk about these laws and kind of talk about how they might apply to, uh, say, the United States today. And again, I think you'll find it to be a very interesting conversation. Um, In the show notes page, I'm going to put a list of scriptures if you want to go and actually study some of the scriptures that Adam talks about, um, because we don't give exact citations or read long passages, but I do want to make that available so folks can go and and check out what exactly Adam is referencing. So, that'll be in the show notes page. Also, when you get to the end and I say goodbye, do not turn off the podcast, because this podcast has a very rare thing in podcasting, and that is an appendix. We actually were talking about something off the air after we finished the interview, and we were like, oh, we need to include this in the show. So, there's an appendix on this, and then after the appendix, I'm actually going to share a few thoughts of my own on uh, the discussion. So, with that, let's go ahead and bring Adam on. All right, Adam, welcome to the Godarchy Podcast. Thanks for taking a little time to be on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm excited about talking about this. This is uh, you and I. I was on your podcast not long ago, and uh, this idea of, of laws of war uh, in the particularly the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, 
came up in passing, and I thought, well, this would be something really interesting to pursue farther. So, uh, we'll do that. Before we really get into it, why don't you give folks just a little background about who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, I don't have any uh, academia credentials or anything like that, but I was discipled by my dad pretty extensively, and I didn't really realize how extensively it was until my mid-20s when I realized that the way I was raised is not normal (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. Um, we would do Bible, we would read the Bible and discuss it for one to two hours every morning, five days a week, plus church on Sunday, plus uh, usually like a Wednesday night Bible study during the summer. So, you know, during during my the course of my life, that all that time just adds up. And yeah, it it, uh, it takes a long time to have an appetite for, you know, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, yeah, right. but I've, I've, I've began to develop one probably in my early 20s. And so that's led me to where I am now. And there's a lot of stuff that I see. It's it's a uh, an interesting life looking around and seeing where God's law is followed and is not followed, and being able to see the consequences of that is very helpful. Right, because I think that's a lot of. I, I think people kind of miss the, uh, you know, the overall point. We get ground into the minutia and lose track of the fact that you know god didn't pass these laws down just to be annoying or just to you know be arbitrary there are reasons some of them pretty clear and then as you as you've mentioned some of them are less obvious but there there are reasons and so obviously as with any law just like you know the laws of physics or the laws of economics uh if you try to buck against them, you're going to find yourself in trouble. It's interesting that, uh, that your, was your dad a pastor or was he just, uh, was just a lay minister? Or? Uh, he was a, a lay minister. He would often, he would teach and fill in occasionally on Sundays, but he didn't teach regularly. Yeah. It sounds like you got a, a better theological education than a lot of people that have had theological educations. I'm, I'm very grateful for it, yes. What's your uh, denominational background? Um, grew up non-denominational, um, but it's probably pretty much just Southern Baptist. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, so, like I said, we we talked about this a little bit when I was on your show, and we'll link to that and also the episode. You've actually done an episode on your podcast, kind of going through a number of these scriptures, and it's really interesting, so we'll link to that as well. Um, but kind of give give an overview, like, uh, what are we talking about here? You know, laws of war. What What is this? And how did you come across it? Well, um, so Deuteronomy 20, it's kind of later on in the book, is the sort of the the central chapter for laws about warfare. Um, but before I, I get into it, I want to um, talk a little bit, about, just give a little brief overview of my philosophy. Sure. Um, my philosophy is that every law applies, and the only difference is in how they look today, because we know that the law is spiritual. So, there are some things, obviously, like... Um, to think of an example. Obviously, we don't have the the temple isn't the same as it was in the old covenant. Right. Uh, that that temple has been destroyed, but we do still have a temple today. So, for example, um, we're told that we are the body of Christ. We're living stones of the temple, and we're also priests like Him. In Revelation one verse six, it says that we are royal priests. So we are kings. We are priests. We are uh, stones of the temple. And in Romans, it also says that we're to offer our bodies as the sacrifices. So, people say, well, you can't possibly abide by all the sacrificial laws in the Old Testament because we don't have a temple anymore. Well, my response to that would be, yes, we do. I'm the priest. Uh, I am a priest. I am a sacrifice. And I am a stone of the temple. So, I'm a fully functional 
uh, temple sacrificial system walking on two legs. So, that's, that's one example of the law being spiritual. And it's a lot to think about. And I think God's designed it that way because it's a very important concept. Yeah, that's... Uh Honestly, I've not really thought of it in those terms. Obviously, we've I've, I've heard those verses and and thought about those verses, but yeah, that puts it into uh, into pretty uh, pretty interesting context. So, what about the what about the laws of war? So, laws of war, um, Deuteronomy chapter twenty. Um, should I just read the whole chapter to sort of give everybody a baseline? Uh, I don't think we want to read the whole chapter, but we'll I'll, okay. I'll link to it so that people can can actually pull it up and read it. But if you can kind of give the give the synopsis or maybe some of the high points. Okay. Well, so some of the high points. Well, uh, it lists as one of the only causes uh, acceptable for war is if a nation makes war against you. So, obviously, you can't just go and and conquer somebody. It has to be uh, a just response. Right. So, they made war against you first, so it has to be a war out of uh, defense. Mm-hmm. That would be one highlight. I think uh, that almost seems like common sense just from an ethical standpoint, you know, even taking a biblical context out of it. I think uh, we don't abide by it, but I think everybody tries to, you know, oh, well, they attacked us first. That's always the justification, right? Right, right. Um, another high point would be um, the objective for the war. Um, so, when you first approach a city, you're supposed to offer it surrender. And if it surrenders, then the nation that makes war against you, they become your slaves and they basically work for you for free for the rest of their lives. And that's that's their payment. And it's a much more peaceful way than having to actually wage war. So, the first option is always peace, but it's not just a, oh, well, we forgive you. It's, no, the people do have to pay for what they've done. It just that slavery is a little bit more tolerable than death, and, and we're looking at this again in in a defensive. So you're not just you're not Absolutely. just walking up to your next door neighbor and saying, uh, "Okay, we're going to make war on you now." If you, uh, do you want to do that or be slave? It's it's more they've already aggressed, and right. this this is an option as opposed to destruction. Correct. Interesting. Well, and and also it would be let's say somebody did. Uh, start a war unprovoked, it would be less harsh, God would be less harsh with them, judge them less harshly, if they did offer slavery rather than death. Right. As a, because it would obviously be the worst possible thing would be to just go in and kill everybody um, without without any option. But it's like, yeah, it, if slavery is uh, preferable to death, obviously. Right. Right. That's interesting. Um so, what else? Uh, let's see. Another one would be the um, who is to be put to death. Let's say they, they choose not to surrender. They say, yeah, we just don't like you, and, and or it was a mistake or whatever. We shouldn't have attacked you, but you can't, you can't come and, and subjugate us, so we're going to fight to the death. Well, there are limits on what, let's say, the, the defensive country, the country in the right – can do. They can't go in and just kill everybody and have a scorched earth policy. They're not allowed to wield their axes against trees that bear fruit. Hmm. And I think I believe the text says, "Is the is the tree a man that it should be attacked by you?" So the scorched earth policy that we see uh, we saw applied in well, let's say nuclear warfare uh, when in Japan, I would say that that's improper. Right. And then also during the Civil War. When the North attacked the South and would burn cities as it went, that's obviously uh, also unjust. Now, we can definitely argue about, 
whether those wars were even justified in the first place. And obviously, right. there's a, a myriad of ways that they were conducted unjustly. But that's one. That's another one. Um, and so how, then let's see. How would, oh, you, go ahead. how would you look at that in the context of, say, collateral damage? So, you know, you think about... You think about the way war was waged, say in in medieval times. You know, you would you would get two armies and they would face to face in a field somewhere, and the armies would fight it out. And uh, you know, very rarely are you going to have uh, collateral damage, as the military likes to call it. But of course, in modern warfare, uh, you know, you're looking at bombs and missiles, and of course, you know, they go off course, and sometimes. <laughs> Not not so unintentionally uh, can can easily bring civilians and and, and whatnot into the uh, scope of war. How would you how would you look at that in this context? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the civilian aspect because the Bible doesn't really distinguish between civilians. It distinguishes between um, the men and the women and children. So when you attack a city, the objective is to kill every man in it, whether he's part of the military or not. And this comes back to the idea of sort of a, well, like with Sodom and Gomorrah, God destroyed the whole city, even though there were a few righteous people in it. Right. Um, and so, it's sort of a, you know, if you live in a country or a city or a state that has these bad war policies, then some of those consequences are going to fall on you uh, just naturally because you're close by. So, that's one, um, that's an encouragement for the men that are in the city to do whatever they can to change the government to be less oppressive and less uh, warmongering. So, in a sense, because, basically, because if war ever comes against, comes against them, then they're going to be caught in the crossfire. So, in a sense, you're saying that the, the population would bear some responsibility for the conduct of their government. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Um. So one of the things that you mentioned in the um, the in your podcast that caught my attention, you were talking about it was about horses, and I was thinking when you first read the verse, and I can't remember the citation for it, so maybe maybe you have that at hand. But I was thinking, what do what does this have to do with? How can we apply this? And then boom, you applied it. I thought that was pretty cool. Can you kind of go over that one? Sure. So it's a, a law for kings. It's found in Deuteronomy seventeen verses fourteen through seventeen, and it basically has laws for kings. Well, we know as believers in the New Covenant, we're considered as priests and kings, so these are laws for us. But at the time, it was for the person that was ruling military power. Um, So, he can't multiply – the king cannot multiply wives for himself, and he can't multiply horses for himself. Well, what's what's the spirit of that law is, well, what were horses used for? What would a king possibly – I don't know if you can think of a reason that a king might want to have – thousands or hundreds of thousands of horses just well, yeah, primarily ready and available. Right. It's basically the same thing as having a, a big field full of tanks. Right. Right. And, and guns and just a right. standing army. Power. Yes. Absolutely. So, it's, there's a law against a king amassing all sorts of military power for himself in peacetime. It's prohibited. Uh, that seems like something that the United States might ought to consider, <laughs> given that just the, a little uh, bit. Given that the military budget is what like I don't know I can't even remember the figure anymore, but it's multiple like times yeah, multiple yeah. times bigger than like the rest of the world combined. Yeah, um, it's a it's a that's and that's really a response of fear because we know we've done so many wrong things. It's like you start building your walls higher and higher because there are more and more people that that want to take it out on you, and for 
for good reason. Right. And you, and you, and I guess in a sense that goes back to what you were saying. As an aggressor, uh, you are putting yourself at not only physical risk but spiritual risk as well. Yes. Well, the the ideal is that a nation has God as its protector, and so you don't need walls, you don't need military power. Um, going back to Deuteronomy twenty. One of the things that um, before you go out to fight, a priest is basically supposed to give a call, and all people who are able-bodied are supposed to examine the validity of this call to war. And if the call is bad, then the people are not obligated to go and fight. They have a duty not to, obviously. Right. But then um, one of the things that the priest says to them is that the God that God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against right. your enemies. He's going to give you the victory. And one interesting thing to note is that when Israel was in good fellowship with God, they never lost a war ever. Right. No matter no matter the size of their army, no matter how they were outnumbered. Mm-hmm. But when they were not being obedient to God, no matter the size of their army, they always lost. Right. Right. In fact, you could you could make the argument that God used, uh, for instance, the the Babylonians. You know, it was by no in no sense a. Uh, a godly country or society. In fact, Babylon is is used consistently throughout the Bible as kind of the archetype of the evil empire. Um, and, and yet, God allowed that evil empire to overcome Israel because Israel had turned from His face. So, right, yeah, that's the pattern. And right now, I'd say that we're under subjugation of the United States or whatever your local jurisdiction is right. because of our disobedience. And so, I take a little bit of a different approach than the anarchists or people that just are upset about big government all the time. Big government is not their fault. It's our fault. Well, I, you know, if, especially if you believe the, the whole notion that, that uh, you know, we are the government. And I've heard, too, you know, it's interesting that they talk about the idea of consent. And the argument is that even a dictatorship, you know, something that's brutally oppressive – uh, in a sense, operates on consent due to the fact that the population is always big enough uh, if it is is of one mind and remotely organized to throw off an oppressive government. So, the right. fact that it doesn't in, in some ways implies this uh, this at least collective consent. I, I get a little queasy when you start talking in, in collectivist terms, but um, that's just my that's, – that's my bias as a probably a radical individualist, but – and mine too. I grew up pretty strong, staunchly capitalist, and all that. There is some, there is some precedent, I think, in scripture for both. Um, obviously, we're individually responsible, but then I think it was a founding father that said uh, nations don't live on to the afterlife, so they have to be judged in this life. Right. Right. Well, yeah, that's absolutely true, and that's that kind of brings us into something I want to get a little bit more into in into kind of the difference between the the, the kingdom of God and and the kingdoms of the world. But we'll 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 dig into that in just a second. There was another um, there was another scripture that you mentioned, um, and you uh, referenced the Federal Reserve. And again, my my old man brain is slipping, and I can't remember that citation. Do you remember that? Uh, what that it's the was? it's actually the same citation, the Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen through seventeen. It's okay. laws for uh, laws for kings. So he can't multiply wives for himself. He can't multiply horses for himself, and it says he shall not acquire excessive silver and gold for himself. Ah, again, that would make me very nervous as a, as a uh, as an American. Well, yeah, but uh, in terms of the ruling authorities, obviously you and I are ruling authorities. Um, 
Well, I guess it would be helpful for me to touch on one pattern. Um, Jesus said, any man who who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And so, the more wealth that you acquire for yourself, and wealthy people will will tell you this, the more things are going to try to eat away at your wealth. And I think that's part of God's design signaling to us that uh, our life comes from the soil. And so, we need to not fail to associate with the lowly. Right. Well, you know, that's uh, that's interesting, too, because, you know, I'm thinking in terms of, of monetary, you know, and you talk about accumulating wealth. We don't really even accumulate wealth anymore. We just create it out of thin air, in a sense. Right. And, as far as the, yeah, our, our currency goes, yeah, which is a terrible travesty. Right. And in a way, it has... The, the monetary policy, the whole monetary system has in some ways detached us from the reality that we live from the soil because we now view wealth as having, you know, X number of dollars in our bank account. Paper. Right. Right. That really has no meaning at all. The only reason that we value money is because it can procure us actual things. Uh, and, and, you know, the ultimate thing is, is the, the fruit of the earth, the plants that come up out of the ground, natural resources. You can print money all day. You can't print corn. <laughs> you know, you can't right. print uh, uh, actual wealth. Wealth is stuff, not money. And, and it's interesting because that accumulation of, of fiat currency does two things. I mean, in the first place, it, it again detaches us from the reality of how much wealth we actually have and, and, and what's being squandered. And in the second place, you know, and this is what struck me when you mentioned the Federal Reserve in your podcast, is the fact that really the monetary policy makes the massive warfare state that we have today possible. This would not be possible if the government actually had to use real resources directly, if they actually taxed the citizenry for the cost of the military we would we would rebel against that but the fact that they can borrow money and then effectively print it out of thin air shields us from recognizing how much resource we're losing by it being channeled into uh, as the uh, truman called it or yeah truman no not truman uh, eisenhower called it the military industrial complex right and that's very true and you do bring up a good point um one other thing in deuteronomy 20 that i failed to mention was how wars are supposed to be funded and this is probably going to ruffle some feathers, but I don't really see any other way around it. Um, when you the um, the pattern is the army. Let's say uh, let's say that I was attacked by a foreign nation. I go in and I kill all of their men. Well, then what happens next? Well, all of the women and children become my slaves, and everything in the city becomes mine. So I don't get paid for the war unless I win. So, you can't go and fight perpetual wars that you never win and keep having to pay money for it. So, number one, it's going to encourage um, the the least amount of casualties and the quickest, most efficient use of military power right. so that the war is over and done with. And then it's not paid for out of my pocket. It's paid for out of the pocket of the um, – out of the nation that aggressed against me. Right. And again, we have to go back and, and remind folks that we're, we're not even talking about a war unless we're talking about something that is defensive. So, this is this is something that uh, uh, people that have already aggressed um, in the first place. So, because right. I, I so think actually, we forget this, that. This is due to the United States right now. I was going to raise that. Because we've aggressed against so many other people. So, this is this will fall due to us someday. Well, and, it's and a very I think sobering thing. I think you know, just just I don't know theology 
and uh, nearly as well as I know economics. And I know from an economic standpoint that what we have right now is absolutely not sustainable in, in any sense. Um, you know, you, you can only print money out of thin air for so long. You can only create so many dollars uh, before the fact that you are not creating actual wealth catches up with you. And, and we are spiraling into that right now. And I think that the next few years are really going to be interesting in terms of where we go with monetary policy. You know, not even looking at, um, I would say, the likelihood that the U.S. will involve itself in, in more warfare over the next four years, because that's what the U.S. does. Um, but even beyond that, looking at the level of spending that they're talking about bringing in for uh, you know, the, the war on coronavirus, which I guess is just another war and another name. Um, you know, they're talking about $1.9 trillion stimulus and then infrastructure. This, this money doesn't exist. And right. it's not economically sustainable. And I think the, the, the kind of big takeaway that you know, as I'm thinking about what you're saying, is that it's not only unsustainable from a, uh, you know, a resource perspective or a money perspective, it's not sustainable spiritually. No, no, you're absolutely right. And the money supply, and one other thing that you mentioned, it would obviously be a far cry from causing, from the aggressor being required to pay for it. But what about if the people felt it? You know, inflation is the hidden tax. Right. So, if you know, the dollar will collapse when people lose faith in it because that's all that it's based on right now. If you went to people and said, hey, um, here are all the – I forget how many countries we have military bases in. Would you like to pay out of your own pocket to fund these? I would say most people would probably say no. Right. But that's exactly what's being done. Yeah. Well, I actually – just very quiet. I actually did the math, and I might put this in the show notes page if I can find it. It was a couple of years ago, but uh, I did an article for the Tenth Amendment Center on the cost of war. Um, kind of looking at some of the uh, numbers that had been released by the Pentagon. And I took that and, and divided it up by uh, taxpayers and asked the question, if you are asked, are you willing to write a check? And I wish I could remember the numbers. It was, it was an absurd amount of money um, on a yearly basis. You know, would you be willing to write this check for, and go into debt, most likely. Oh, yeah, absolutely you would, because it was in the 20s of thousands. Um, how many people would actually be willing to, because we're also, you know, people are gung-ho to jump on uh, the latest military adventurism. But, again, you're not sustaining the cost. And, and even, you know, it's interesting, because if you look at the way things have changed, and I'm by no means a proponent of the draft. I think that uh, a draft is... Literally slavery. I mean, the the government is yep. stealing your uh, your labor. But if you look back at you know the Vietnam War, I think part of the reason that the backlash and the protests were so uh, widespread and vehement was the fact that people saw their kids being uh, sent off to go into into this war. And they felt that pain. Today, we don't really feel it. You know, we don't feel it financially because, as you said, inflation is a hidden tax. And we don't feel it in terms of looking around us and seeing the the toll that it's taking on the young men and women uh, in, in the country. You know, we hear about it on the news every once in a while about the PTSD and, and all of these things. But by and large, we're insulated from it. And it was, it's interesting because I moved recently to an area that is uh, uh, very heavily influenced by military bases. We have 
you know, one of the biggest naval air stations in the country here. We have um, the U.S. submarine bases up the road in Georgia. And, and so there's a lot of military. And you you get a different feel when you start talking to these folks who are actually being deployed and actually being asked to fight this war. Or mm-hmm. I shouldn't say this war. I should say all of these wars. Uh, you do start to see a little bit more the impact that it, it actually has. But I think, by and large, most people are oblivious. Yes, they are. And you brought up one thing earlier, um, which is the – well, just the whole thing about the draft – in 1 Samuel 8, God talks about what is going to happen to his people who reject him as king and instead want an earthly king. Right. And one of the things is he's going to take your sons to be his soldiers, and he's going to take your daughters to be his uh, maidservants. So, it is a slavery. Yeah. Rejection of God is a is a uh, request for slavery, yeah. ultimately. Um, and also, going back to Deuteronomy 20, um, what – you know, for a nation that trusts in God, what's supposed to be the mechanism for who fights and who doesn't, who's required to fight and all that. Um, so, there are – it's actually a pretty wide door for people that want to abstain from war. If you've been – obviously, if you're uh, 20 years old and up is the age requirement. So, if you're under 20, you can't be forced to go to war. Uh, I would say you probably shouldn't want to either. Um, if you've taken a wife in the last year, if you've recently planted crops – like in uh, it says a vineyard specifically in the text, then then go home and I believe it says if it's the first time that you're going to harvest from it, you need to be there for its first harvest. But then also it says if anyone is afraid, you're allowed to abstain because if you're afraid and you're forced to go to fight in war, you're going to make it says the you're going to make the hearts of your uh, companions melt. So. The encouragement is to have a really, really dedicated, uh, confident group of men that go, and there's no fear involved at all. And so, it's not in the size of the army, it's in its conviction. That's interesting, yeah. In so, nobody can be forced to fight, because you can literally just say, I'm afraid to go to war, and nobody can make you go. Huh. It's interesting, too, you know, looking at that, uh, again, you see the practicality and and the reasoning behind what again you know sometimes when you look at stuff in the old testament it seems arcane and you're like well what what the heck and and you can see very clearly i mean you know just thinking about if you've got a you you don't want to kill uh the people that are reproducing and and sustaining your society um so you can right. see that you know i mean that makes logical sense so Right. And it's the, yeah, it, it does, just like you said. So, let me run something past you to, to kind of close this loop, wrap, wrap things into a nice, neat bow, which we certainly probably won't do, but we'll give it, give it a shot anyway. We'll give it a try. Yeah. Um, so, my view, broadly speaking, well, let me back up a second. You know, you, you see in the Beatitudes, um, a lot of language that Jesus uses says, it is written, or you have heard, but I, now I tell you. And you see this this that uh, kind of idea that the law was kind of the bare minimum, and then Jesus says, I'm going to add even more to that. So, l- let's use an a- example so people understand what I'm talking about. Uh, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, and then he goes on and he talks about, about mercy. And so, 
you know, my contention is that, I mean, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth actually was pretty radical in, you know, ancient cultures. That was not mm-hmm. the thing. It was more of a, a an eye for, um, you know, a finger and all your teeth for a tooth. You know, or an that, eye for, or, or an eye for your head. Right. Exactly. So, so the idea was that, you know, retribution should be just and in proportion and, uh, that vengeance is not something that, so this was, this was radical within that culture at that time. Um, Jesus takes it a step farther and says, uh, maybe we should, uh, you know, not do this eye for an eye tooth demon thing. Let's take it farther than that. Um, so, so you see this kind of progression where, where we're going above and beyond, um, from a spiritual standpoint as we begin to understand what the kingdom of God is. So, b- building on that, it's my position that as Christians, um, our nation isn't America or whatever nation we happen to be in. Our nation is actually the church. That is the, the people of God. That is God's uh, covenant community. And it's, you know, when you see the way God dealt with Israel, I think we should apply it more to the church than we should these political societies that that we see around the world. That being said, my contention is that war itself is a sin construct, uh, that Jesus created a new kingdom that is built on peace. Uh, you know, we call him the Prince of Peace, and that as Christians, we probably shouldn't be involved in or supporting war at all. What would be your um, what would be your response to to that assertion? Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up. Um, and I believe it's Isaiah chapter 2 and also Micah chapter 4. It says what the days of the new covenant are going to look like. And it's going to be a day where the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Right. Nation won't ri- rise up against nation and they will not, not learn war anymore. So, I believe that that's in our future on earth, and that's something that we have to look forward to. Um, in the meantime, and this is for the the pacifism argument, which I understand – um, when you brought up uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, um, and I want to give maybe a little bit of a different perspective, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, the thing that Jesus proposed instead is not in any way in a contradiction to that. It's a fulfillment of it. Right. So, when he says, turn the other cheek, so let me ask, um, if somebody slaps me on the cheek, according to God's law, what's the penalty for slapping somebody on the cheek? It's a slap. It's a slap on the cheek. Okay. So if somebody slaps me on the cheek, then the penalty is for him to get slapped on the cheek back. So what if I offer my other cheek in payment instead of him getting slapped? What if I offer myself to get slapped again? Okay. I see where you're going. So forgiveness, there's, and we use this in English. I'm not sure how it works out in the Hebrew, but there's a difference in English the way we refer to forgiveness versus atonement. Some people think of forgiveness and use it in the sense that if somebody wrongs me, I just let it roll off my back and I ignore it. Right. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus doesn't say, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, let it go. Okay. He says, no, you have to take it a step further because until you offer payment out of your own hide, then you're going to harbor this in your heart and it's not atoned for. It hasn't been made right. And then he uses the example of a tunic. If somebody steals your shirt, offer him your tunic. Right. Or if somebody forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Right. So, for the pacifists out there, if somebody were to make war against us, 
then the a turn the other cheek response would be to then invite them to enslave us on top of attacking us. So that that would be upholding justice. Now, I'm not there, and the reason for that, um, there's a passage in, uh, it's Leviticus 24, 17 through 22. It says, whoever takes a human life surely shall be put to death. And then, let's see, there's another one where it says that the life of a murderer shall not be ransomed except by the one who shed the blood. So, I would say, and even in the turn the other cheek examples that Jesus gives, and maybe I'm, I'm rambling on a little bit too long. No, no. No, absolutely not. But Jesus gives three examples of theft and assault. He does not, note, he does not give examples of murder. Like, if somebody, if somebody murders your son, give him your other son. Right. Or if somebody rapes your wife, allow him to rape her again. Right. I would say there's a limit there. And I would say that we, as people, do not have the authority to forgive capital offenses to then offer ourselves. That's, I would believe that that's reserved for God alone. Right. Now, there is an argument to be made that we're brothers of Christ, and so now we do have that, um, but that's a debate for another time. Right, right. I guess where I'm coming from, and, and I, you know, I've wrestled with pacifism. People that listen to the show <clears throat> regularly know that because I've talked about it on a number of, ca- of occasions. Uh, and I'm not all the way there, particularly in terms of, um, you know, as, as individuals or even as, as a community. Um, you know, if, if somebody comes into my house and threatens my wife, um, I'm going to react <clears throat> with violence. <laughs> and we could debate whether on a theoretical standpoint that's right or not. And, and I think you can make sound debates on, on either side of that. But that's where I am right now. If somebody comes in and attacks my wife, I'm going to use defensive force uh, to protect her. Um, I'm not convinced that... I should care one way or another as a Christian whether the United States gets attacked or not, because that's not really my kingdom. That's absolutely you got it. Yeah, I'm I'm there too. Uh, there, there's a place in First Corinthians five and six. Paul's using this for a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, um, and he says, "Why do you bring your matters to be judged by unbelievers?" Like, you deal with your own stuff. You right. don't take your matters to be decided by unbelievers. And also, when they start deciding our matters for us, that's a sign of us rejecting God. Right. And it's, that's God bringing Babylon in to basically punish us. Not saying that Babylon is a righteous nation. It's saying that we're unrighteous. Right. And this actually circles back to my last episode, which I'll link to on the show notes page as well, where I uh, – uh, are you familiar with um, David Lipscomb? I am not. Uh, David Lipscomb was a, uh, a an evangelist, pastor, teacher in uh, the late 1800s. He was in Tennessee. Actually, his he came out of a movement that I think came out of like the Second Great Awakening. Um, and, and the idea was kind of we're going to unify all the denominations, <clears throat> kind of go back to, excuse me, go back to a New Testament church kind of thing. And obviously that didn't work. But out of that... Uh, came, I think, the Disciples of Christ denomination. But, <clears throat> excuse me. But Lipscomb wrote a book about civil government, and he basically, you just encapsulated his argument that that these nations are all ultimately kingdoms of the devil, that they're all going to ultimately be destroyed. As you mentioned already, we're going to have uh, a new kingdom, which will be a kingdom of peace where plows are, are beat or swords are beaten into plowshares and, and 
we see lions laying down with lambs and that whole imagery. And uh, he contends that these nations, God uses them uh, as he sees fit. And again, I mentioned Babylon punishing, uh, being used to punish Israel. That that doesn't make the kingdom of Babylon good. It's just a tool that God used. But ultimately, all of these kingdoms, the United States, uh, Great Britain, Russia, China, all of these kingdoms, are, and whatever kingdom may come after this that's of this world, they're all going to be eventually wiped away and put under Christ's feet is the... Um, the imagery that's used, I think it's in First or Second Corinthians, where it specifically mentions that all all of these authorities will be put under Christ's feet, and so um, basically right. that Paul, Paul refers to that as the fullness of the Gentiles coming in, right. Right. So, uh, Lipscomb kind of lays this out. It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And uh, and I talked a little bit about um, about that and the idea of the of the kingdoms of the world as opposed to the kingdom of God in the last podcast and. Um, so now we've come full circle. So I really appreciate your insights. Uh, a lot of things to really think about. I hope folks will kind of um, uh, dig into this. And again, I will link to uh, your podcast episode where you actually go through these various scriptures and folks can get the citations and actually sit down and study them for yourselves because I don't think it's something you can really grasp and absorb in a uh, in a podcast episode. But I, I do appreciate the insights. I think it... Um, you know, if if we're going to support the war warfare state, so to speak, uh, <clears throat> it should at least be done. You know, if, if we're going to accept that wars are inevitable and that nations are going to engage in wars, then you should at least expect them to be fought in a way. Uh, I guess it's almost like a, a a biblical just war theory, right? Yes, absolutely. So, tell folks where they can find your stuff and uh, follow you. So, right now, all I've got is the podcast. Um, If you just search Theocracy, it's a blue logo with a cross for the T on Theocracy. And it's on Spotify, iTunes, and everything. And if you want to email me or contact me with any questions, it's theocrat at gmail.com. And that's with two E's. So, it's like the... Ocrat. Got it. Like Old King James, T-H-E-E-O-C-R-A-T at Gmail. And I'll stick both of those in the show notes page. Well, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate you taking the time to have this discussion. Um, this probably, this may be the deepest uh, Godarchy podcast episode we've had. So, that's pretty cool. Oh, I'm glad to be part of that. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Uh, you have a great afternoon and uh, we'll do this again sometime. All right. Thanks very much, Michael. Thanks for having me. All right, so we're back because uh, we were just talking uh, off the air, and uh, Adam brought up something, and I thought we need to talk about this real quick uh, as, I guess, an appendix. Can you put an appendix on a podcast? I guess we're going to, right? But we were just talking about this whole idea. You know, we've talked about some things that are pretty heady um, and kind of theologically interesting, but what's the real-life application of this, and and how do we kind of move forward? How do we use... Uh, what we've just talked about. So, what do you think about that, Adam? How, how how does this apply to real life, as they say? And you know, it's not an easy answer. I wish I had uh, something other than raise you know raise good families, teach them uh, teach them God's laws, and try to live by them. There are some things that only God can take care of, and I think with the just the amount of the atrocities and the sheer sheer scale with which all of this stuff is happening in the United States. Um, this this all may take several hundred years to sort itself out, but I want to encourage individuals uh, 
a nation is made up of individuals and it's going to take individual action, cumulative individual action. And those, those stack up and those cancel out and more, uh, all the wrongs that have been done. So think long-term, think a few hundred years into the future. What are people going to wish that you did today and go and try and build that, build a foundation of, uh, teaching your own children and raising godly families. You know, I think that's uh, I think that's incredibly wise and, and much less. Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Some people would would hear that and say, "Well, that's just kind of a cop out answer." But um, one of my favorite historians is Brian McClanahan, and he does a podcast. And one of his catch phrases that he uses often is "Think local, act local," mm-hmm. and we have all of these these big concerns. And I think these things are magnified by social media and the the 24 hour news cycle, but really ch- you, you hit the nail on the head. Change starts at home. Change starts with our own families, uh, our own neighborhoods, our own communities, and, uh, and, and putting these principles into practice in our own lives. And, um, you know, from, from small things, great things grow. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, God's going to take care of the big picture. Our responsibility is to just do what we can within the within the scope of influence that we have, and that may seem small, but uh, you know you have enough people that are that are focused and committed to that, then you can bring about great change. So I think that's very wise. It adds up. There's an author I really like. Uh, his name is Joel McDermott. He wrote a book called Restoring America One County at a Time. And the first thing he starts with is teaching your own children instead of giving them to the state to raise. Yeah. Because that's something that you can do now. It's legal here. Right. And it's not legal in most places. And so, if you won't resist the government in the most fundamental way possible in something that is free for you to do and legal, it's only going to take a a rescheduling and some work adjustment. Then what makes you think that you're going to be able to do anything when all of a sudden now you have to do something that's illegal? Yeah. It's not going to happen. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, This is the first ever – appendix or a post log to a podcast ever in history i think so i think we just made podcasting history we just did uh two two records right the deepest one and the one with the appendix yeah, there you go no I, and i'm saying i'm saying this is probably the first one ever of any podcast to have an appendix. oh oh yeah yeah so i, I think we just like now everybody will do it <laughs> we'll apply to guinness shortly yes thank you so much and uh again we'll we'll do this again sometime looking forward to it All right, so that actually is the end of the interview and the appendix. And to close out, I just want to offer a few of my own thoughts. As I've kind of chewed on this over the last couple of days, I'm still very much of the view that as Christians, we should not be supporting, uh, making excuses for, cheerleading, justifying, participating in the wars of the uh, kingdoms of this world. These are not our kingdoms. I made this point in the show. Uh, Our kingdom is totally different. We are people of the kingdom of God, and we do not engage in war. We are a kingdom of peace. Our Messiah, our King, our leader is the Prince of Peace. And so, as the church, we should be striving toward those kingdom ethics. And the kingdom ethics don't do war at all. But I think this is illustrative in the fact that uh, 
even if you're going to try to justify America's wars, I think it is very clear from this discussion that the United States is in no way, shape, or form following the biblical principles of war. And, you know, it's interesting to me as I interact with folks on Facebook and talk with people, the pretzels they will twist themselves into to try to justify violence generally and war specifically. And to me, there's just really no middle ground on it at all. But if you're going to try to justify supporting America's wars or whatever country you happen to be in, if you're going to really try to make that um, justification, then you at least have to look at, you know, this is usually justified through the Old Testament. And people say, well, look how the Israelites conducted themselves. Look at the wars they were in. Okay, let's do that. Let's throw away everything that I just said. And let's say, fine, God ordains wars. He doesn't. But let's just pretend for a minute. If that is a fact, well, he doesn't, at least in the new kingdom, uh, in the in the new covenant kingdom that we live in today. But if he did, if we are going to engage in war as people of God, we should be following the rules of war that God laid out in the Old Testament, correct? So we're not even doing that. That, to me, is the takeaway from all of this. You can disagree with, uh, you know, Adam's broader theological points and um, you know, you can say maybe he's nitpicking uh, the application of the Old Testament, whatever. But I think that this is an overarching theme that we can all learn from. The fact that God did give rules for engaging in warfare and the fact that none of the nations follow those rules. Now, this should come as no shock to us because the kingdoms of the world are the dominion of Satan. And Satan is the prince of death and war is the ultimate expression of death. So, so that's why I say as Christians, we should uh, turn our back on warfare completely. Uh, but I wanted to have this discussion and I wanted to talk about, you know, even in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament uh, way of doing things, uh, there were rules for war and we ain't following them. So to me, that's the big takeaway. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope they gave you something to chew on. Again, the scriptures that Adam referenced are going to be in the show notes page if you want to do your own study. And uh, you know, if you have questions for him, his email will be on the show notes page. You're welcome to shoot him an email and, and uh, uh, get a little more clarification if you want to. So with that, I'm going to wrap up the show. Uh, as always, I do appreciate you listening. If you are interested in supporting Godarchy further, uh, you can do that. You can go to patreon.com slash Godarchy, and you'll find my supporting listeners uh, page there. And all I ask for is five bucks a month. And um, in return, you get to be in my super secret Facebook group, which, you know, it is what it is. I think the the... Unique thing about my Patreon, my supporting listener program, is that uh, 40% of what is given to me is passed on to other folks um, that are in need or other organizations that we believe in. Uh, this month, I gave a donation to the Mises Institute. Uh, I've supported uh, antiwar.com. We've supported several individuals, uh, the, uh, the uh, Methodist um uh, UMCOR, United Methodist Committee on Relief, which is the, uh, they, they, uh, 
do disaster relief and disaster response. So we've supported a lot of different organizations over the year. To me, that's what voluntarism is all about. We say that we are going to voluntarily help people in need, support each other. We want to make that kind of community with Godarchy. So that is how my Patreon is set up. Again, you can check it out, patreon.com slash Godarchy. Uh, you can find us in the social media spots. I'm on MeWe. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Facebook, of course, on Twitter. And all of those links will be on the show notes page. Again, thank you for listening. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Oh, you ready for me? Oh, okay. Uh, um, excuse me. You, uh, you have been listening in to the God Erky Ur- podcast in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. With Mike Meharry, God Archie is an oh, me, oh, oh, my, oh my goodness production. Um, you can find us on the World Wide Web at GodArchie.org, um, on the Facebook at GodArchie.org, and on the Twitter at GodArchie. If you want to get in touch, email us at info at GodArchie.org, but no stupid questions, please. And you can support the show at Patreon.com. I mean, get in that pocketbook and get some money out. This ain't cheap to do. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you. <laughs> and God bless you all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.